Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Michelle Hennessy, and this week, why is homelessness in Ireland on the rise again? Ireland's latest homeless figures have passed the 10,000 mark for the first time since before the pandemic. Those figures include almost 3,000 children, and we now have the highest number of young people aged 18 to 24 in homelessness on record. When COVID hit and the country entered its first lockdown, the government put emergency resources in place for those who were already homeless. Legislation introduced over the course of the pandemic to prevent evictions and freeze rents also offered protection for tenants to keep them out of homelessness. But as soon as restrictions were lifted, that situation began to reverse. And now any progress made during the COVID crisis appears to have been lost. Homeless charities have sounded the alarm, warning that rates will continue to spiral without swift and significant action from the government. So what's driving the homelessness rates now? And what's needed to bring them back down? Here to talk us through today is Mike Allen, Advocacy Director at Focus Ireland. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Now, I want to start with the COVID pandemic. When the country went into its first lockdown, how did the government and organisations like yourselves respond? If people remember back to those very dark days when uh, the lockdowns hit and everybody was being told to stay in your home, stay in your home, stay in your home, that was very dramatic, very striking, very disturbing for people who are homeless because that's exactly the one thing they couldn't do. So the positive side to this story is that there was a huge stepping up in terms of all the voluntary organisations like Focus Ireland and others, but also local authorities and the health authorities working much more closely together than we had done for years. And indeed, working closely together like we should have done for years. There was great concern, I think, all across the world that homeless people might be particularly vulnerable to uh, to getting COVID and to dying from COVID because of underlying health issues and because of their inability to protect themselves. And in Ireland, we had one of the, you know, there were there were a couple of deaths, very sad deaths from, from COVID, but very few deaths amongst the homeless population directly from COVID. And that was, uh, I think, a huge achievement um, for everybody involved. So one of the things that the government did in terms of protecting people was that they stopped evictions. So if you had a private rented uh, or, a, or a local authority uh, tenancy, you could no longer be evicted during the time that there was the five kilometre lockdown period. And what about the other practical things? I mean, did we see things like an increase in beds, for example? Yes, there's big changes in terms of emergency accommodation. So a very significant number of the emergency beds available in the Irish system are dormitories. There's been some improvement in terms of of the quality of accommodation available. There's still large numbers of people are in rooms of six or or more. And obviously that's a a huge risk during the pandemic uh, of spreading the illness and, and, and so on. So... What happened was the number of people in each of those dormitories was reduced and and as much as possible people were given a room on their own. And that meant that we needed additional space. So the local authorities used hotel rooms, but they also entered into agreements with short-term accommodation. So obviously the the tourist industry had collapsed. There were a lot of people with Airbnbs or other short-term accommodation that were free and leases were were taken on those and people moved out into into those sort of areas. For particularly vulnerable people, uh, people who had underlying health concerns, Focus Ireland and a few other NGOs worked with the HSC and the local authority to set up what were called cocooning units or or shielding units where people who had very serious uh, health risks were kept in a a safe environment and given the support that they they needed in order to uh, deal with all the other challenges that were going on in their life and also to stay safe from COVID. And over the course of the pandemic, what kind of impact did these various measures have on the homeless figures? What were the kinds of trends that you were seeing? So there was a significant 
people mostly watch the overall figure. So that's the number of men, women and children who are in emergency accommodation paid for by the Department of Housing. So, so homeless accommodation. And as people are familiar with, it doesn't include people in refuges. It doesn't include people trapped in, in, uh, in direct provision who, who have, have got refugee status and, and, and so on. Um, so that was what the headline figure. Uh, fell quite dramatically. But if you look behind that, there were very different patterns. So the number of families that were homeless fell quite quickly. Um, and that was because there was an eviction ban introduced by the government, which meant that anybody with a private rent tenancy couldn't be evicted during that period of time. And that meant that the number of families entering homelessness, that evictions from private rent accommodation is the biggest single cause of, of, of family homelessness. That closed off to a very large extent. And also, we were also able to support with local authorities a lot more families to move out of homelessness. And you've got this sort of double positive effect, fewer families coming in and more families moving out and a, quite a dramatic fall in family homelessness, which had a big effect on the overall figure. But if you look behind that to what was happening on single homelessness, it continued to rise right the way through the, the pandemic. It's continued to rise almost on a straight line since 2014, the first figure. No matter what government comes in, whatever policies have been put in, single person's homelessness rose, has risen from around 1800 when we had our first figure to over 5,000 now. And that continued unchanged during the uh, pandemic. So highlighting, I think, that the causes for, for single people's homelessness are different. Single people tend not to be, not to enter homelessness from a tenancy which is from which they're evicted, they tend to enter homelessness from other forms of precarious living, whether that's sofa surfing or coming out of hospital or coming out of prison or coming out of, of a situation where there's a, or, or a breakdown in a relationship where, where there's a couple living somewhere and the relationship breaks down and one of the people ends up single and homeless. So the, the picture for single homelessness was, the overall picture was, was, was positive and, and picture for families was, was positive. But behind that was a very worrying continued negative trend in terms of single person's homelessness. And what about people who were sleeping rough? How did their situation change, if at all, during COVID? It's yeah, so a huge efforts were were made to make it safer for people who are sleeping rough. Um, it's important to understand while the, the level of people who reach rough sleeping in Ireland is unacceptably high, any level of, of people having to sleep on the streets is unacceptably high. In international comparisons, it's relatively low in Dublin. So it's one of the successes that we, we, we should be more aware of. And most of the people who are sleeping rough on any given night will be in emergency accommodation sometime during that week. So people, significant number of people moving in and out of emergency accommodation. So a lot of effort was to was made to make sure that those that those group of people who move in and out of emergency accommodation were in emergency accommodation most of the time and were supported there. And then for those who have totally rejected emergency accommodation, um, very often because they find it un, found it unsafe or that the rules didn't suit them, there was problematic in lots of different ways for them. There was a. a very strong effort made by the, the two NGOs involved in that area, Peter McVeary Trust and, and, and the Simon community, to bring those, along with the local authority, to, to encourage those people to come into somewhere where, where uh, they would be safe. And the cocooning services that, that uh, I mentioned earlier, the, where uh, people with particularly underlying health uh, problems were brought into very well-resourced, well-supported well uh, units with their, their own room and their own facilities and so on where they could isolate a, a number of people who were very much on the margins who would, would be likely to rough sleeping fall into that category and were supported in that way. So so rough sleeping did continue, mostly people in tents, 
but there was a significant reduction of it for a significant period of time. And there was a lot of uh, health and other support outreach to the people who continued to, to, to sleep rough during that period of time. So that overall reduction we were seeing in the figures, that slowed once restrictions were lifted and then they started to go back up again. Were you expecting we'd be where we are now or did it happen more quickly than you anticipated? The primary reason that the, the overall figure fell is because of the eviction ban. And we were very critical of the, of the government linking that ban to the most severe form of lockdown so that you had to be so nobody could move out of their house or move more than five kilometres for that to come into place, which meant that people were being evicted into homelessness when we weren't allowed to move 10 kilometres or when we were being told to, to, to stay at home most of the time. So the level of protection of people uh, who were homeless fell away during the pandemic and you immediately began to see the, the impact of that. It's important to say during that later period of that, you could still continue to, to evict people or deal with issues which were to do with antisocial behaviour or other things which were causing other people very adverse effects. It wasn't a free-for-all that was in place. It was a, a protection measure and, and, and very positive in that way. So we knew that the minute that those restrictions were lifted, everything would start to go back to the way it was. And we've no idea how, um, how quickly that would happen. In actual fact, it happened more slowly than we had thought. So once the clock started ticking on, on evictions, it took a bit of time for landlords to start trying to sell up. And then the um, length of notice that people have to uh, be given if the landlord is selling up is now reasonably long. In a, in a functioning private market, it would be enough for people to make alternative accommodation if the landlord was selling up. The problem is that um, no matter how long you give people of notice that they're going to lose their current accommodation, it's virtually impossible for them to find somewhere new. So no duration of, of notice works. But as that notice was um, working its way through the system, our services right across the country were getting more and more people coming into them saying, look, I've been given notice to quit. There's three months on it. There's two months on it. There's a couple of weeks left on it and so on. And, and lots of people not able to find alternatives. So it took a bit longer than to, to actually start hitting than perhaps we thought. But when it hit, it's actually been far, far worse than, than, than our, our, our worst fears that we're back to a situation of the number of families coming in. In Dublin, where we, um, 80, 90 families a month becoming homeless, entering homeless accommodation. And that's back to the level we were seeing at the worst time a few years uh, prior to, to COVID. And then, you know, with the range of other pressures that are, are, are coming on at the same time, it's very hard to see it shifting to a more positive out, um, outcome unless the government changes the immediate policies that, it, that it's pursuing. Is there any way to gauge how many people would have been kept out of homelessness if that eviction ban had remained in place? It's very hard to be certain uh, exactly how many people would, would be prevented from becoming homeless. But if you look at during that period of time, about uh, 30 families a month were becoming homeless in Dublin. And that's now up to 80 or 90 families per month. So I think we could be fairly certain that the difference between those figures are people who were being protected by the, uh, the eviction ban. So you're probably talking about 60, 60 families a month um, are facing homelessness now who wouldn't be facing homelessness if they had better protection in the private rented accommodation that they're in. And then that builds up over, to, you, you can't just take that on a, on a month. Um, as landlords are selling up and as the private rental market becomes more expensive and more, in a sense, elitist, um, in that the, the lower rents are all disappearing, it's harder for families to, to get out of homelessness and so you'd probably see, you know, each month 60 more people becoming uh, 
becoming homeless as a result of the eviction ban being lifted, but more of them are staying than would if there was an eviction ban because of because of the effect on the, on on the, the overall market. It sounds like from what you've said that. You know, for, for families, the eviction ban was very significant. Uh, for single people, there actually wasn't a very big change in terms of their experience during COVID. So is it fair to say that the reasons that people are finding themselves in homelessness now are pretty much the same as they were pre-COVID? Uh, yes, it is. Um, it is. The two primary reasons that people uh, become homeless uh, from the private rented market are either they can't afford their rent or landlords are selling up and evicting them so they can s- sell the property. And then you have, if you like, social reasons or family breakdown, relationship breakdown and, and, and those sort of things is the, is the third reason. And the, the, the proportion of these change over time. If you go back to when the, the crisis was starting, it was predominantly rents and they there was some measures to deal with that. And then it was predominantly landlords leaving before COVID. Now, what we have now is both the rental and the fa- landlords leaving are both hitting us at the same time. So there are households who would be contacting us saying they're at risk of losing their home because the landlord's selling up. And there are other households who are, who are contacting us because they're falling behind. Their landlord isn't selling up, but they're not possible for them to, to meet the, the rent levels because the rent levels are too high, the HAP levels are too low, and then there's huge other demands on their, on, on their budgets. I think it is important to say in terms of the evictions, ban, that the eviction ban isn't the solution to homelessness. I mean, this, the, the, if landlords want to leave the market, that you can't sort of have a long-term measure which is going to force them to stay in as landlords. So the, the, the extent to which an eviction ban is a long-term solution is very, very limited. The argument for an eviction ban is it protects people during the period of time when we're putting in the longer-term solutions. I think that's a really strong argument for doing it. Whether it's an eviction ban or some other measure, we need to convince a significant number of landlords to stick into the private rented market, to stay there for the next three or four years while we put in place the additional houses that the, the people need. So them staying isn't the long-term solution, but it's absolutely necessary to protect uh, people from from the consequences of, of homelessness and to protect the taxpayer from the enormous cost of, ta- of, of homelessness. And are we seeing many people experiencing homelessness for the first time now, or maybe back in homelessness after a longer period of stable housing? Yeah, so there's a interesting patterns here, which we now understand that we haven't, I think, as in terms of policies of, adequately responded to what we know about the issue. So that there are, a, a, before the pandemic, a, about a third of the families becoming ho- homeless had very um, insecure housing experiences. They'd been in and out of homelessness um, or, or insecure housing over a long period of time. And those are the families that really need support. The sorts of measures we put in place for housing first are needed for those families. At the moment, we only apply Housing First in Ireland to, to single people, but there are a small number of families who, who require the same level of support. But for, so that's, a, that's about a, a quarter of the families becoming homeless. For the remaining three quarters, most of them had had very um, secure experiences in the private rented sector. Families who'd have been renting the same place uh, for seven, 10 years. Um, and so the reason they were becoming homeless was absolutely nothing to do with them at all. It was to do with the decisions their landlord was making. And then they weren't able to find alternative accommodation. So that experience of families, like we've been hearing it since, um, I suppose, since about 2016 of uh, parents saying to us, look, we've known about the homeless problem and we've been cared about the homeless problem for years, but we never thought it would happen to us. And we've been hearing that since for, for, for 
for eight years now, but we're hearing an awful lot more of it now as this problem of landlords uh, selling up continues. And also people who were always able to stay ahead of their rent and look after their rent are finding it impossible between the, you know, on one side, the um, the rent's going up to an unsustainable level, the government's refusal to increase the, the support they give them in HAP, and the other demands which are on every household in terms of other household costs making it impossible for people to stay ahead, ahead of their rent. So there's diff- very different patterns in, in, in different groups. I mean, people will notice there that I, I'm able to give quite a lot of detail about the experiences and background of of, of families entering homelessness. And that's because of research that Focus Ireland has done that we've invested in. We've got do- donors to support that f- that that research, it's high quality research, and we've published it. Um, it's very well internationally respected. Nobody has done the same work in terms of single people. So we don't actually, you know, we, we know certain things anecdotally about the experience of single people. But considering that our level of single person's homelessness has almost tripled uh, since the beginning of the crisis, it's actually shocking and we spent millions of euros on trying to deal with the emergency consequences of that. Virtually nothing has been spent by those who should be spending it in terms of understanding exactly what is happening to single people and, and what we could be doing to prevent them becoming homeless or reduce the number of people who are stuck in homelessness for so long or, or just fundamentally get on top of what it ought to be seen as an absolutely overwhelmingly important question. And something we do know, which you talked about, is is that rents are a big factor here. Rising rents over the last couple of years have obviously had a significant impact, particularly on families. But how does the general rise in the cost of living tie into all of this? It's to some extent, it's it's, it's another factor. So before the cost of living was was affecting such a, a, a range of things, everybody was aware of this massive increase in in, in private rent levels, and uh, you know, even though there's um, uh, being rent controls in lots of areas, landlords appear to be increasing rents significantly above uh, what was legally allowed. And then if you're on HAP and most of people on low incomes are on some form of housing assistance payment, the level, the maximum level payment on payroll on that hasn't increased uh, since 2016, while rents have legally increased by over a quarter during that time. So from that rental side, people are already under an awful lot of pressure. And then uh, immediately after COVID, you had the, the, that inflationary effect and then exacerbated by the dreadful war in U- Ukraine um, so that people are seeing increases in all their other bills, the, the um, energy bills in particular, but but also food bills and, and so on. So same as any other household, people are trying to, to on, a, on a fixed, very low income, trying to work out how they afford their rent, how they afford their heating and how they afford their food. Uh, and all the other living expenses, and that's that's had a huge effect on people's capacity to pay their rent. The it's the the way that HAP works is quite complicated. Um, people pay a differential rent to the local authority, which is only fifteen percent of their income. If you're on low income, that's can be you know a, a significant demand, but it's but it's um, it's it's a it's a fair system. It's the same as uh, local authority tenants would pay. But if you're in HAP, you also probably are paying an additional what's called a top up to the landlord and that could be hundreds of euros a month in addition to what you're paying to to the local authority and so tenants are uh, having to decide look which of these things should I pay there's not just one set of rent but you've got the rent to the landlord and the rent to the local authority as well as all the other bills and um, what we found is is that 
um, wrongly, a number of um, households sort of feel that, that the, the one that's paid to the local authority is the one that probably that is going to have the least consequences if they don't pay it. But local authorities are now moving against a lot of uh, HAP tenants who have fallen behind in the payments to them and threatening them with return to homelessness or, or, or ending the, the, the tenancy. If a local authority knows of a household who are falling behind in their arrears, their response should be to try and put them in contact with the various services such as ourselves, but also state services like community welfare officers who can help them, rather than to threaten to evict them and throw them into into homelessness, where the their um, the cost of the state will be even greater and the damage to the family will be enormous. It seems like emergency accommodation is under particular pressure at the moment. Housing Minister Dara O'Brien said recently that the influx of migrants to Ireland, separate from the 35,000 Ukrainian refugees who've arrived here, is having an impact on the rise in homelessness. And he said it makes it hard to plan capacity for emergency accommodation week to week. Are you seeing this in your services? Um, there was a particular increase in the number of non-Irish nationals in March, which led to some commentary and fell away again then in, in April down to a lower, a lower level. The vast majority of non-Irish nationals who are in homeless services have been living in Ireland for years. Um, they've been particularly badly affected by the uh, housing and homelessness crisis because the majority of them live in the private rented sector, which is where the crisis has played out. So if their landlords are selling up, the chances of the tenant being a non-Irish national who's worked, who's been here for years and living uh, and working here are much higher than they would be if it was some other part of the housing system which was which, which was being affected. Um, so I think that can very definitely be overplayed. But there are a small number of uh, non-Irish households who are arriving in, in Ireland uh, and we're aware of those and we're aware of, of the, the challenges that raise, both in terms of language and in culture and the vulnerability of those families. And there does need to be a much better European Union-wide response to this. The majority of them are European Union um, uh, uh, citizens. And Ireland has been a huge winner in terms of um, free movement of labour across the European Union. Um, so a relatively small number of, of European uh, uh, migrants coming and, and, and needing housing support is a small part of a balance in which we're, we're very much the, the winners. But it isn't right that there should be free movement of, of, of uh, labour and yet there is no coordinated response uh, across the European Union to uh, people who've moved from one Euro European Union country to another and find themselves homeless or, or uh, destitute. Um, there needs to be much better support for the relatively small number of, of people there because they tend to be people who are very, very vulnerable and need very high levels of support. Um, I don't think it's as much of the problem as perhaps some of the commentary has suggested, but certainly it, it, it is a, it's a serious issue for those individuals. And part of the problem is that, that Ireland has, a, has a, I think, a very humane response in terms of emergency accommodation to the small group of people that we provide them with emergency accommodation. Quite a number of European countries, including some very progressive countries, do not provide emergency accommodation for other EU citizens or other EU states who are destitute. Uh, which is appalling. We do, but it then leads to the problem they don't have housing rights. So people tend, there's a real risk of people getting trapped in the homeless system when the homeless system should really always only be a short-term measure as people move on into housing. But if you've got no housing rights in Ireland, 
um, that can be a challenge. So it, it is a complex issue, but I would be very careful not to exaggerate the, cons the, the scale of it in terms of our overall problem of 10,000 uh, people who are directly homeless and many tens of thousands more who are on the margins of homelessness in various different ways. I want to talk about solutions. The government's Housing for All plan aims to build 33,000 homes a year and help in some way to tackle homelessness. That's well off target now. What does that say about the urgency there is in tackling homelessness? Well, I suppose you have to be realistic about the challenges that this particular government has faced in terms of that plan um, and covid as well as the effects on directly on, on, in, on individuals and homelessness that we've talked about, had an effect on the building trade and, and you know, an, an awful lot of the building um, uh, sites were stopped during that period of time. So that had an inevitable impact. One of the problems here is that it's, it's not one of these issues where the if you miss the target one year, you try and hit the target the following year. If you miss the target one year, the number of homes that you meant to build that, that you were meant to build in that year but failed to do so needs to be built as well. So it sort of accumulates. So, you know, if you fall behind the target um, by 10,000 in year one, your target for the following year is 43,000, not, not 33,000. I don't think that's adequately um, factored into in, into the way we're dealing with, with this issue. Um, so in addition to the problems that were immediately affected with COVID, there are quite clear problems now emerging in terms of uh, inflation costs and building and the increase in interest rates. So Focus Ireland is one of the larger, as well as being a, you know, one of the leading homeless organisations, we're one of the leading housing associations as well. We over, we have over 10,000 um, homes that we rent out to people who were formerly homeless. And we've got a very ambitious programme of buying and building new homes for people. And a lot of the challenges for us, and this is shared right across the sector in the not-for-profit sector and the profit sector, in terms of that building, a lot of those plans are on hold, were on hold because of COVID, and now they're on hold because interest rates have gone up and building costs have gone up. So the contracts that we've signed to build units um, are not are not viable, and there seems to be. I think this is a really difficult problem. So I'm not not saying there's an easy solution, but there doesn't seem to be any solution currently being put forward by government in terms of well, how are we going to deal with this and how are we going to get back on track? And the consequences, like the thing is that it takes a long time to get momentum up on the housing system, and when something comes along which brings it to a halt, such as COVID or such as the inflation costs coming along now, it can set things back by years. It takes a long, long time to get the, the momentum up going again once you've once a set of contracts or, and so on has, has fallen because the, the conditions under which they were signed have changed. It takes a long time to get the momentum back up running. And so much greater urgency in responding to um, the real challenges. I'm not diminishing the challenges, but I am questioning the uh, speed with which we've been able to, to 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 deal with them, and the consequences of this will run over the next ten years. And unless we can produce more, at the moment, each year there are a larger growth in the number of households looking looking for accommodation than there is available accommodation. So, when we don't meet our target, it's not that we uh, slow down reaching the success; things actually get worse. And so next year, the, the mismatch between the number of households who want to play, need a place to live, and the number of dwellings which are available for them will be worse than it was last year and worse than the year before. So the underlying mismatch is getting more problematic, which means for the more vulnerable, 
that's going to be inevitably that's going to 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 be much worse more people are going to get squeezed out more people are going to find it harder to get back in again and i don't think there's a sense of uh ur- the, the the appropriate urgency about dealing with that um in terms of taking the sort of measures so i mean i suppose part of the context here is the the ukrainian refugees uh, arriving and and I think all the homeless organisations, including Focus Ireland, believe that Ireland has done the right thing in in relation to that. Uh, even though we have a housing crisis, um, the situation facing those refugees was appalling, and it was unthinkable that Ireland would turn their back on on them. But that said, just because you're doing the right thing doesn't mean it hasn't got consequences. You need to rise to that challenge, and there was a lot of talk of rising to that challenge. And the minister having new sort of wartime power, emergency powers, and able to do things that he wasn't able to do before, and so on. And if that means that the, that some of the the issues which have bedeviled us for generations but have been intractable can finally be resolved, they will be resolved both for people, both the Ukrainian refugees and for the Irish people and people living here who've been waiting for housing. So it could be a, a win-win. But i yet to see what that would mean in practice. So the one of the one of those issues which has been around and mentioned every time there's a new attention on, on the housing and homelessness issue is the, the number of housing units that are lying empty. So we don't even really have a figure for that. The census says it's around 130,000. And then another figure came out, it was about 80,000. Then local th- authorities came along and said it was much lower than that in terms of those that were available. So we still, even after talking about this for 10 years, we don't really have a figure. But we do know that there is an issue. And you just need to look at any of our towns or cities to see the amount of empty property above shops or derelict buildings and so on, which are lying there. So what kinds of conversations then have you been having with the local authorities and with the government recently on the topic? I mean, we've passed 10,000 in the official figures again. Are you seeing any of these kinds of solutions that you're talking about on the table? Is there any sense of momentum from the officials to deal with this problem now? I think there is. I think, there's, for instance, all the local authorities are adopting new three-year um, housing and homelessness plans, um, and they're adopting their, their development plans. The government is committed to this uh, goal of working with other European Union countries to end homelessness, um, to work towards ending homelessness by 2030. It's unlikely, extremely unlikely, that that goal will be reached within that time frame. But very substantial progress could be made towards it if the right actions were, were, were put in place. So there are a number of positive things. And as, as I've said, I think there's a much stronger collaboration between health authorities, local authorities, NGOs and government around these uh, around these issues than there was in the past. But if you step back from that and say, like, does all that activity amount to something which is equivalent to the scale of the challenge we're facing? I think you'd honestly have to say no. We need to the we need to up the game by a very significant step above what we're currently actually doing uh, if we're to to achieve, achieve the goals. So, like every particular element of the program is constantly takes much longer than it's ever than 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 was envisaged or doesn't seem to have been particularly thought through or doesn't have to be there is a sense as we talked before about this need this this is a response to the emergency and we we need to say what we're doing today rather than looking at well, what's the longer term implications of that that's been true of legislation and uh, and policy as well and we don't need measure we don't need policies that look good on the day we need policies that are going to look good 
you know, for the over the period of time that they need, need to apply. And that that will require an awful lot more ambition than, than currently we've we've been able to demonstrate. And we're obviously in the middle of the summer now. And while homelessness is a problem now, it becomes an even bigger concern in winter each year, particularly when we're talking about that proportion of people in homelessness who are spending their nights outdoors. So what are you expecting to see this winter? And will the preparations for a potential seasonal surge in COVID form part of your own plans? Yeah, I, th- I'm, I think that the, the COVID dimension of that question is quite challenging in that most of the structures to deal with COVID have really been stood down and, uh, you know, people we've, we've put it behind us probably prematurely because of what we're seeing even now about the, the current wave of, of COVID. And that while with p- people who have been vaccinated and, and, and so on, that the risk to life is lower than it was when we were looking at two years ago, for vulnerable people, there are still going to be huge challenges over winter. So I think there is a bit of sort of um, putting back in place some of those structures that are going to be necessary move towards the winter. One of the problems with our protection, our, our response to winter is that it, it inevitably seems to put greater concentration on more and more emergency shelter. And Folkestone is very clear that while emergency shelter is necessary for our people are, home, are homeless, one of the reasons we're in the hole that we're in at the moment in terms of the scale of homelessness is that our primary response to homelessness has been building more and more emergency shelters. So as I said, like for single people, there were about 1,800 single homeless people in 2014, and there's now over 5,000. So that's over 3,000 more emergency beds. Well, if we build 3,000 one-bedroom apartments, and allocated them to vulnerable people, we'd have done an awful lot better than building all those emergency beds. Um, and so I'd be, I am worried that we will revert back to sort of crisis, emergency, let's get more emergency shelters and all the uh, undoubted energies and skills of everybody in local authorities being completely directed to the question of where are we going to get emergency shelter from, um, given you know, what we know about you know, hotel rooms and, and all the overflow things that were there before. I'm very worried about that uh, because we need, while we need that emergency accommodation, we need a core part of our anti-homelessness, our housing crisis team, thinking about the medium to long-term solutions and doing the things now, which will actually only pay off in two years' time. And um, uh, and that's not, there isn't, a, there isn't sufficient concentration on that. And now over the summer will be a good time to, to try and get the work going on that element of, of, of what we're doing. Deal with the issue about the housing supply drying up, deal with the issue about um, affordable rents, and fundamentally deal with what can be done to convince landlords who are currently thinking of selling up to hang on in the market for a number, a number of years while we put in place the, 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 the longer term solutions. And with the track we're on now, do you expect the figures to continue to rise for the rest of this year? Is that just sort of inevitable now? It's very hard to see what's going to happen, which is going to turn that around. I, I really, really hate the sort of, you know, people predicting the, the next increase and things like that. Partly because I think it just desensitises people to the reality of it and people take it for granted. That rise. It should be a shock every time it goes up. We need that public shock. And, and refusal to accept that it's inevitable. Um, that said, on the current set of policies that are on the ground in that government is putting in place, I can't see any alternative 
but it to, to go up. So if we're going to turn it around, we need additional measures than the ones that are currently in, in place and much more great, much greater urgency about delivering on the measures which have been talked about and promised and committed to and legislated for, but actually haven't uh, hit the ground. Well, I think you've given people a lot to think about there. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Mike. We really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone who listened to this episode of The Explainer. And thanks again to Mike for joining me. This episode was brought to you by producers Aoife Barry and Nikki Ryan. If you liked what you heard and you want to support The Explainer, there are a few things you can do. You can head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber, or you can leave us a rating and a review as well if you're feeling generous, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.